0: So, <clears throat> I'm going to give four uh, talks in the next four days, <clears throat> and uh, in, in a way they're they're a set kind of thing, and they sort of, uh, in some ways, y- 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 there's a sort of spiral in them, so it might seem, <clears throat> to subtle degrees, I'm sort of going back and forth across certain issues or contradicting, and I actually I'm spiralling around something to, to, in some respects. What I really want to do is, is give a map of practice and a potential map, uh, not the only map, I wouldn't claim that, but potential map or maps <coughs> of how uh, this might unfold into the depths. Um, for many of you really in the future, for many of you really in the future, if you want to, if you want to pursue it, um, for some, a lot sooner uh, than that, actually, quite imminently. Um, in uh, so, I hope that's okay. I really hope that that's okay to do that, to put that out there, and I hope that that can be interesting. I hope that, uh, I hope that's interesting for you. Um, in the interviews, still, what I'm really, really wanting to hear about is. What, where your practice is at now what's alive for you, what's working what's not working, how it can develop and that's really the prime concern of this retreat, uh, is the development of your practice, meaning the deep direct seeing of emptiness in a way that you actually feel is freeing and uh, so that development of meditation is very much what I, what I want to be hearing uh, about from you <clears throat> so the retreat is not um, it would be a shame if the retreat was just a kind of expression or, or, you know, throwing out some ideas which you may or may not be interested in, or you may or may not like, or you may or may not object to, um, that uh, doesn't actually interest me that much. What really interests me is the development of your practice in a way that brings freedom. So, um, going back, uh, who knows when, some point, several weeks, um And i talked, I think I've talked on three different occasions, uh, whole talks, where it's really about the attitude to practice and the attitude to hearing teachings. And all that's uh, really, really important, Um, fundamental, I I think, and goes uh, very much in, in these next four talks. So what's the attitude? What goes on when you hear some of this stuff? And is it possible that it can actually be enjoyable? Too often what happens when we hear, and we've already touched on this, when we hear about, uh, you know, places in practice where we're not quite at yet, too much, uh, too often the inner critic comes in for many people. And this is interesting. I could give a whole talk on the inner critic, I'm not going to, but what goes on there? Why, why is there this... Uh, contraction in self-judgment and a sort of collapse of our attitude towards practice. What's going on? I was talking just in the last few days with a few people and oftentimes of course it's related to uh, our sense of self-worth and self-love. Somehow that's um, in the whole measurement of the self and where we think we are and what the teacher thinks of us and all, all that stuff and it comes in so easily Trace it, trace it, trace it. Look at these emotions. And oftentimes it's like uh, that my sense of self-worth is is dependent on where I am in achieving something or succeeding at something, in this case meditation practice, because this is a meditation retreat, or my sense of self-love, or my sense of being loved by another. Sometimes the person says, I think the teacher won't be interested in me. What I bring in practice, if you talk about this, then then what I bring to an interview obviously won't be interesting. It will be, the teacher will be bored or think it's irrelevant, or actually at the bottom won't love me. This is, this is what goes on. There's roots for that in the culture, there's roots perhaps in the family, there's roots in the education system, all of that, but it goes on, it goes on a lot. Um, I mean, just, I don't know if I should say this, but ju- just, uh, from my point of view, there, there's none of that going on at all. Uh, what I respond to when a person comes to an interview is how much they care, and, how, and their aspiration, and their, wherever, wherever one is, it's like wanting, wanting to be a bit freer, wanting to understand a bit more. Where one is, is completely irrelevant, but that's something that I, uh, when a person has care, when they have aspiration, that's what my heart resonates to. And uh, whatever your care is, I feel like I'll meet you there. I'll meet you. But however much care you have, I'll meet you. And it's not about where you are. And then, of course, if you don't care, it's, it makes it hard for me, because then I feel like I'm kind of lifting up a weight. But, um, you know, we could talk about it all night. I'm not going to, but... Uh, So, maybe the inner critic comes up in these talks, and fine, you know, not a problem, it can be there, it can be there, it's just a blah 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 blah, and it's okay, it's just the tape machine running, I don't have to necessarily buy into it, maybe give it lots of room, give it space, it can be there, not a big deal. So... Having said all that, it's really okay if this feels like it's beyond you, and it's okay if you don't practice any of this now, of what I'm going to talk about in the next week. It's completely, completely okay. Um, you may feel like uh, you want to file it for later. You, know, you may feel that that's what you want to do, is sort of try and understand, get a, get a picture, make notes if you want, and keep it for another time, keep it for some time to come. That's totally, totally appropriate. So in a way, I hope, um, as if for, for uh, many of you, that will be the case. I hope then that that kind of frees you up to just listen and sit back, and just kind of kick back, put your feet up met- metaphorically, mm-hmm. and 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 enjoy and listen and just kind of curious, uh, and still be engaged, and that's completely fine. So I want to, as I said, fill out a map to have a sense of how this whole process might unfold and might deepen for a practitioner. <clears throat> and again, probably works better if we have the questions afterwards, and, um, unless it's really not making sense. Okay, well, actually, similarly, s- still staying on that topic. You know, when we look at practice, practice is huge. I mean, to me, it's huge, and it's deep, and it's wide, and it's, it's uh, multifarious. You know, it's so rich, what practice is, and we talked about this image way back of this uh, poisonous tree. And so you can cut the flowers off, or you can cut some branches off, or you can um, prune it a little, or you can cut it in, in the trunk, or you can really go to the roots and uproot it. Practice is like that. In other words, um, we have a whole spectrum of where we can pitch the practice at any time. And it's not that as we deepen in practice we sort of forget about earlier pictures or pruning the leaves, uh, pruning the flowers, it's that we we just add more and more. So for example, you and I are friends and we have an argument, it might be completely appropriate for us to just talk, me to just think about how I'm communicating. There's no emptiness, no business of not-self, just about that. How am I communicating? Totally appropriate no matter how much practice I've done. Um, it might be uh, the practice of metta, uh, impermanence, you know, anatta. These are all slightly, you could say, slightly deeper. Uh, we've, we've touched on the awareness of phenomena being empty, or the understanding, the practice of seeing the emptiness of phenomena. You know, that's a, a deep, it's cutting this poisonous tree d- deeper down on the, on the trunk. But all of that is available. And we, beautiful thing as practitioners, is we have, we have a, a choice. We have more and more choice as practice unfolds. So, tonight what uh, what I want to speak about is awareness, awareness, and how can we, as meditators, really see deeply that awareness lacks inherent existence? And what does that mean, and how might I move towards a meditative, deep, transformational seeing of that? Okay, more than an idea. Um, and that, you could say, is really getting close to the roots. It's really beginning to uh, actually lift up the very roots of this structure of the poisonous tree. It's a very, very deep uh, level of insight. But all of those uh, levels are available. They're all all available for us. And they're all actually important. So where, where I'm going with this is to say that awareness or the mind, using those two synonymously tonight, mind or awareness or consciousness, whatever, is empty of inherent existence. Now that might seem, it might sound abstract, if a person says that. What does that even mean? Awareness is empty of inherent existence. (coughs) It's important to realize with this stuff about emptiness that the the, the dukkha we have in life, the dissatisfaction, the dis-ease, the pain, uh, its roots are principally not philosophical. They're not that we've taken a wrong idea of this and that and we're believing this philosophy as opposed to that philosophy, uh, or this metaphysic as opposed to that metaphysical belief uh, or idea. That's actually not really the deep problem. And right back to the beginning, the deep problem is the innate, intuitive sense of the inherent existence of things, including awareness. That's not anything to do with philosophy or ideas or religious ideas or what I've read in this tradition or that tradition. It's actually something that we gut viscerally feel that things, uh, we see things as having inherent existence. We sense things as having inherent existence. And that level, uh, much, much deeper, whether we're conscious of it or not, is, is where the suffering, the bulk of our suffering, dukkha, whatever you want to call it in life, comes from. So a person, and even plenty of Buddhists in the Buddhist tradition, uh, will say or believe or may believe, uh, awareness is the only thing, it's the one thing uh, that's real. It's the one thing that has inherent existence. And that can be a, a religious, philosophical, spiritual belief or whatever, or intuition or feeling or perception. Another person can say, I don't believe that. Uh, the Buddha clearly said that awareness uh, also lacks inherent existence um, and is also dependent arising. If the second one is just an intellectual belief based on what we've read in the suttas and what the Buddha said, etc., actually the case is that both uh, are are kind of still the default view of inherent existence. Just an intellectual view is not going to cut things. I need to see it deeper in meditation. Do you understand? Um, without that deep meditative seeing, we actually just fall back on our default views, no matter what intellectual view we're trumpeting. It doesn't make any difference. We will fall back on the default view of inherent existence, of something or other. Something or other. We may dress it up as this philosophy or that philosophy, this standpoint or that standpoint, but that's the default gut feeling we will have of things. Now, some of you in this room, uh, and it was very much the case last year, and and it's good, it's great, some of you will be of a sense or an intuition or a feeling or a perception that awareness is not empty of inherent existence. That actually is some kind of reality there. And it would seem, it would really seem to a person that to say that awareness doesn't have inherent existence would then be a disappointment, a mystical and spiritual disappointment, we're holding something this beautiful sense of awareness transcendently mystically there embracing everything and then someone comes along and and pokes at it and says it's not really and it would be like "Mm, what a deflation actually actually that's not the case Uh, I would say, and the experience is, that to really see, again, not just intellectually, but to really see that awareness lacks inherent existence is even more amazing, even more freeing, almost unbelievably so, is something even more beautiful and touching to see that awareness doesn't have inherent existence than it is uh, this idea, whatever we might call it, of, of an awareness that does have inherent existence. And I keep saying this. Emptiness is not a teaching of disappointment. It's not a teaching of disappointment. It's the opposite. Uh, Even more freedom, even more amazement, even more uh, capacity to love will come out of that seeing deeply. The release will be even more, to the point a person wants to laugh out loud when you see that. And like I said, if I don't see it deeply in meditation, that's really what I want to be talking about, the meditative seeing. Uh, if it's just intellectual, I just will fall back on my default view of the inherent existence of things. And something in there, whether it's bare attention, whether it's what the senses seem to be telling me about life, staying at contact, whatever it is, whether it's uh, the self is a process, and something in there, the elements, the time it happens in, the awareness, something, something, something will be given inherent existence. Okay, so what I'm interested in is how 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 does a pra- practitioner move into this and deepen it in a way that really transforms the heart? And again, it may seem, and I hope it doesn't, that it seems abstract, that it seems like a talk like this has nothing to do with this particular fear or this particular anxiety I have, or, or whatever it is. But again, it's this tree. And what are we snipping the le- leaves of a flower in terms of... Uh, what our particular suffering is, or are we going right to the trunk and cutting it there, even b- below the trunk, right to the roots? So it does have everything to do with freedom and unburdening and and love. <clears throat> so to remember also that saying that something, this self or this... Uh, phenomenon, this aggregate, or awareness, or whatever it is, is empty. It's not a kind of nihilism. It's really not. It feels like it, it's important to keep saying that. It doesn't mean that we then trash that thing, and it becomes meaningless. Ah. Okay. So, I said I was using this word mind and awareness synonymously. Sometimes people use the word mind and they refer to the sort of grosser cogs of thinking and wrestling with things, etc. I'm actually tonight using the word mind, consciousness, awareness, that which knows, all, all meaning the same thing. So this knowing, this capacity of knowing, whatever it is that knows, that's what I'm talking about tonight. Sometimes people say the mind is the four mental aggregates apart from form. So you've got form and then the mental, what makes up the mind is feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. And you could say that's mind. (coughs) Um, Either way, whether it's the four aggregates, whether it's just one called consciousness, whether I call it awareness, whatever, whether I call it that which knows, whatever name I give to it, it, it's empty. It's empty. And that's what I want to go into. (coughs) So, way not way back, a couple of weeks ago, when we were doing the Anatta practice. And we talked about, there's actually a subtler level in the Anatta practice. Uh, it's quite a thing to be able to have a sense of consciousness or awareness and in that moment really to be feeling it uh, as not me, not mine, to unhook the, the default normal identification that we have with awareness. And that's, um, that in itself is a practice unhooking the identification with, with awareness, with consciousness, with mind. Uh, there's a Thai forest meditation master called Ajahn Mahabha. He He's probably still alive, but if he is, he's very, very old. And he gives an account of his practice uh, at different stages. He said he was walking meditation, uh, doing walking meditation years ago, and this intu- this uh, voice came up inside him, just just sprang up, this intuitive wisdom. And it said, When there is a center to the knowing, there is dukkha. When there is a center to the knowing, there is dukkha. And that, he said, was a real turning point in his practice. When there's a center to the knowing, usually I'm the center of the knowing, okay? And when there's a center of the knowing, there's dukkha. Actually, that statement can be understood at a couple of different levels couple of different levels of a mean, of meaning, we'll come back to this, because I can take it as saying that the awareness is there, but it's not me or mine. It's the anatta of awareness. I can take a whole other level of subtlety, which is what I want to, want to get into tonight, which is awareness is shunyata, is empty. Shunya is empty. Awareness lacks inherent existence, not just that it doesn't belong to anyone, but that it actually lacks inherent existence. Okay? Um, It's already subtle to see that, um, it's already subtle to be able to unhook the uh, identification from where it's. Very possible, subtle, difficult, very possible. Uh, It's even more subtle to see that consciousness, awareness, mind, whatever we call it, lacks inherent existence. Very difficult, very possible. Very difficult, very possible. Uh, To see it deeply in meditation. But I want to, uh, again, repeat um, something I've said before in here, which is, is a style of teaching which is that I may, for quite a while, uh, have the view, or the feeling, or the sense, or the perception in my meditation that awareness is it, and uh, that it doesn't, uh, sorry, that it does have inherent existence, that it's not empty, that it, it's the kind of, it's the reality. And I view that as a really, really important stepping stone. So going back to the talk we gave on the vastness of awareness a couple of weeks ago, not the final truth, but really, really an important stepping stone. So it's like these stances or these views that you can get into and kind of pitch camp there for a while. Very, very freeing. A lot of love comes out of that. Very important. And they're provisional. And they're provisional. So let's repeat that phrase from the Zogchen tradition. Uh, Trust your experience but keep refining your view. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. Yeah. So talking about the movement of practice. <clears throat> okay, so let's go into this. If... <laughs> Perhaps at first in practice, or maybe for actually quite a while in practice, the sense of the mind or awareness or consciousness is somewhat like a mirror. It feels as if there's something inside, so to speak, that is a kind of mirror for the world. It's mirrored inside somewhere. Now, obviously, we don't think there's actual piece of glass in, inside somewhere. But the sense is of awareness is kind of functioning like a mirror. And some people uh, will, and again, you will hear it in teaching, some people uh, use that model and say the emptiness of the mind, when people are talking about the emptiness of the mind, what they're really talking about is cleaning that pane of glass, scrubbing it. Again, we go back to the doors of perception, Aldous Huxley and all that, and bear attention. You're scrubbing this glass so that it reflects, like a really good mirror, it reflects cleanly the reality outside. Uh, sometimes also you hear emptiness of mind or no mind means no thought, but uh, I don't know if you remember, I made a division between thinking and conceptuality, which I'm going to go into tomorrow. Uh, it, to me, that these are helpful, helpful pointers, but uh, not the full thing yet. Why is it helpful to feel or even view awareness as a mirror? A mirror... Is unaffected by what goes in front of it. A mirror does not care what it reflects. Right? Doesn't it? Beautiful, ugly, scary, whatever. A mirror does not care. We can have a sense in meditation, in our introspection, of awareness is like that. It's unfazed, unperturbed, unbothered by what it's reflecting. And that sense of awareness brings equanimity, because equanimity is exactly that, is it's not being bothered too much by what's in awareness. So it's actually very, very helpful, but, uh, as I said, not quite the real deal. Why not? We don't need anything more than we've already done in here. Uh, it implies, if it's reflecting reality, it's re- implying uh, things as they are an independent, inherently existent reality of things which is reflected by awareness. But all this business we've done in terms of seeing the emptiness of phenomena shows us already that things as they are is not... There is no things as they are. Right? There there is no things. There is no how things are. That is empty. That's wrapped up in the mirror concept or the mirror intuition or whatever or the mirror teaching. Can't, Can't be the real thing. Second problem, and this we haven't gone into full detail yet. Um, okay. This talk kind of goes with tomorrow night's talk. Um, but the sense, again, with a mirror sense of awareness, the, the feeling there, the intuition, the implication, is that awareness is something passive. A mirror just hangs out, doesn't do anything. Along comes an object, along comes the world, along comes whatever. And, and passively, the mirror awareness automatically reflects it. And again, in meditation you can have a real sense of awareness being something that just is. It just leaves it, and it just does does its thing spontaneously, without effort, without doing. But this actually, with a lot of deep examination I'll go into tomorrow in in more detail, we actually find out that awareness, the whole process of knowing, being aware of something, is not a passive process. It's a, it's a fabricated process, part of that Wheel of Dependent Arising, is fabricated. We actually put work in to know something, it's very, very subtle, extremely subtle. And this is where we get into the subtlety of Dependent Arising. But the sense of passivity of awareness is actually, uh, it's not quite seen deeply enough. There's a famous uh, Zen, I think he was a sixth Zen patriarch called Huineng. Neng. Have people heard of Huineng, Neng? Yeah? Um, he, I can't remember the story exactly. He was, he was in a monastery, but not, not even a monk. He was something like. Do, do you remember what he uh, was? Bruce told tells the story. story. You did okay. He, good. he was an illiterate woodcutter. Good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So you heard the whole story. Did you hear well, uh, the the poems? Why, why didn't you read? Okay. them? Because there is so, different. Uh, okay, so anyway, he he was not a monk, and then there was a uh, this is a story I know. Uh, the abbot knew that he was dying, and wanted to find a worthy a worthy successor for the abbotship or whatever it's called and uh, so rather than give it to the next in line guy he's he because he wasn't quite sure about the next (laughs) about his depth of realization so he decided he said okay what we're going to do is on that old wall out there everyone write a verse a poem uh, or anyone who wants to can write a poem uh, kind of summing up their realization of what there is to realize and so different people wrote poems, and um, and a guy called Shen Xu, Shen Hiu, who I think was the sort of favourite uh, in in the runner, uh, wrote this poem: "Our body is a mirror stand, and our mind a mirror bright. Our awareness a mirror bright. Carefully we wipe them hour by hour, and let no dust alight." I doubt it was in such terrible doggerel, but <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And so the, the other monks looked at that and thought, you know, this dude really, really has it, that must be the winner. And then something happened, I don't know, the abbot didn't say anything yet, and a couple of days went by, and then one night, uh, the next morning, another poem appeared. There never has been a mirror stand, there never has been a mirror bright. Since all is void and empty, where can the dust alight? And that was Hui Neng's poem this illiterate woodcutter, wasn't even a monk, and the abbot said, that's my man. (laughs) Okay, so that's one model, and we're going deeper than that model, helpful, but only provisional. Another model that we might, is, is this sense of going back to the vastness of awareness that we did, really, really important for a lot of people. And there's two ways it can feel, as we did in that meditation, it can feel like the awareness is sort of uh, infinitely vast and holding everything. It's almost like awareness is the container for everything, and everything just happens in that, and awareness remains unaffected, eternally serene, eternally unperturbed by what happens within it. This is a very important meditative uh, seeing, meditative perception, in other words, as some of you already tasting, you can have that in meditation. Very, very important. It can also feel, when the meditation goes a bit deeper, that this vast space of awareness is actually the source of phenomena. It feels, the perception in that space, is that everything arises out of that space. Phenomena, sounds, body sensations, they're arising out of awareness, out of this ground of awareness, so to speak, and disappearing back into it. Very, very helpful. So that goes back to that guide of meditation, and out of this will come equanimity, deep equanimity, deep love, deep freedom. Will really open the being. But, 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 <laughs> but, uh, awareness can seem that way in that sense of things, in that depth of meditation, it can seem like it's free, it can seem like it's independent, Uh, it can seem like it's just there, eternally there, unperturbed, uh, vast, uninvolved uh, in, in the sort of more gross cogitations of the mind and experience and the thinking and the reactivity and the building and all that. But, a couple of buts, we are probably not seeing, or we need to see, that that sense of vastness, uh, of awareness, too, is actually an object. It's an object. It, too, is a perception. We have a sense of something, therefore it's a perception. We, ha- we actually have a sense of this awareness. still a perception. It's an object for, you could say, for the mind. And as such, it's woven in with perception. This very sense of awareness is woven in with the process of perception, very, very helpful, but that's the thing we need to see, that it's woven in with perception. And by perception remember I'm using perception experience, object is all awesome. It's woven in with that process of perceiving. The Buddha said, "If you understand perception, you don't need to understand anything more. It sounds like such a dry thing to say when you say, "What is awakening?" It's the understanding of perception. It sounds very dry. We would rather hear something else, perhaps. But th- that's that's the nub of it, because our very sense of awareness is wrapped up with perception. I'm going to go into this in more detail. Uh, there's a sutta, it's actually the first sutta in the Nikaya, where um, it's a very striking sutta. So uh, this sense of awareness, or vastness of awareness, being a kind of source, a kind of groundless ground of, of being out of which everything kind of emanates from that and disappears back into that. Uh, very important, but again, it's a perception. And secondly, here's a sutta, it's Majjhima number one. It's a little long, but, but listen. An ordinary uninstructed person perceives the luminous realms, uh, meaning the, the, the jhanas, the, the great being, a sense of God. Uh, the dimension of infinite space, the dimension of infinite consciousness. So the is talking about what you can perceive in really deep states of meditation. So the ordinary, uninstructed person perceives the luminous realms, great being, the dimension of infinite space, the uh, dimension of infinite consciousness, dimension of nothingness, dimension of neither perception or non-perception. These are very deep, meditative perceptions. Uh, the all perceives the all, perceives nirvana. Perceives nirvana. And perceives that as those things as the luminous realms, as the great being, as the dimension of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception or non-perception, or or nirvana. Perceiving, to paraphrase, these things as these things, uh, he conceives things, he or she conceives things in that thing. In other words, I conceive things in that space of awareness. I conceive things in that space, I conceive, or he or she conceives things coming out of that. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Conceives phenomena coming out of that space of awareness or or whatever. Uh, He, she conceives whichever one of these flavors of spaces, to go back to the talk on on vastness of awareness, conceives uh, this or that space as mine, and delights in that space, whatever space it is. Why is that? Because he or she has not comprehended it, I tell you. Something there we still haven't understood. A practitioner who is a trainee, and listen to this language here, yearning for the unexcelled relief from bondage, his aspirations as yet unfulfilled, directly knows, the luminous realms as the luminous realms, etc. The great being is great being, dimension of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothing is not, all nirvana as all those things. Directly knowing these things as these things, let him or her not conceive things in that space, let him or her not conceive things coming out of that space. Uh, not conceive these spaces as mine, not delight in these spaces. Why? So that he or she may comprehend it, I tell you. May comprehend it, I tell you. May understand that space, what it actually is. In other words, don't give it something it's not. Last paragraph. An arahant, a totally uh, enlightened uh, being, devoid of mental fermentations, who has attained completion, finished the task, laid down the burden attained the true goal, destroyed the fetters of becoming, and is released through right understanding, directly knows the luminous realms of blah, 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 uh, Nirvana as blah, 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 Nirvana. He does, he she does not conceive things about these these spaces. Okay? Does not conceive things coming out of those spaces, does not conceive uh, these as mine, does not delight in that, because... Uh, because they have comprehended it, I tell you. One of the most striking things about that sutta is most suttas end when the Buddha talks to monks or nuns or lay people with, with, and the monks delighted in the Blessed One's words. This one ends, uh, the monks did not rejoice in the Blessed One's words. They were not hap- this group of monks were not happy to hear that. <laughs> mm. mm. <coughs> Going right back to the opening talk, there's a challenge here. It's a very, very deep challenge. Uh, especially, um, and again, going back to what I said today, it's not a philosophical challenge; it's a meditative challenge. Because if you reach these spaces, and some of you—this is what we've been doing—some of you are in this with you—you are struck by the beauty, you are struck by the luminosity, you are struck, moved, deeply touched, deeply freed by that sense of things, and yet it's not a final resting place. Uh, so. Other other flavors. Um, the nature of awareness is luminous. The mind is luminous. Again, very hear that in uh, lots of different traditions, including the Buddhist traditions, both Hinayana and Mahayana. Uh, and again, a, a a a a very palpable, striking, moving, freeing sense of things that one can have in meditation. Not talking about philosophical abstract actual sense of things that one gets with one's own uh, inner seeing. Let me read you two translations of the same passage uh, in the Pali Canon Anguttara Nikaya 149. First translation luminous is this mind brightly shining but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This Unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. How do you feel when you hear that? It's not a trick question. (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? No? Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. seems to be pointing to... The, luminos- the mind is luminous, that's the kind of... Uh. There's another translation, very same passage, different teacher, different translator. Luminous is, is this mind, brightly shining, and it is defiled by incoming defilements. Uh, this unknown people do not understand, and so there is no development of the mind. Uh, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is freed from incoming defilements. First, AN one four nine. The first one said it is free, the second one said freed. Quite a difference, isn't there? Uh, freed from incomes and so for them and so for these people to understand there is then development of the mind. Okay. Partly what I want to draw attention to is um well, a couple of things. Uh learning a little bit of Sanskrit myself now, and very slowly in the last couple of years, i already knowing en- enough to actually see that passages can be bent in their translation quite easily, that a lot of the original texts are can not that clear. Is it saying this or is it saying this? Ajahn Mahabua, that Thai forest master I referred to earlier, he then, uh, in his kind of uh, meditation memoirs, or whatever you want to call it, uh, he he then goes to another place where he said the, the only thing left was the sense of ignorance delusion what is this what is delusion and he was struck by the luminosity of the mind this radiant mind radiant mind he said the thing that really did the trick that really cut uh, the tree at the root was seeing that the ra- in hi- in his words the radiant mind is delusion the luminous mind is delusion uh. Even within the Pali canon, you get texts that seem to contradict each other. And certainly when you open it up uh, to different Mahayana teachings. So what what might this mean? Luminosity, luminosity. Uh, If luminosity, and sometimes in meditation we have a sense of luminosity, again it's a palpable, moving, touching, freeing, beautiful sense. We have a sense, but still, if it's an object for the mind, it's a perception. Right? to perceptions in the realm of perception. it's wrapped up with perception as such it's fabricated cannot be awareness itself if it's a perception if I have a perception of luminosity it cannot be awareness itself it's more of an object do you remember um, going back to that talk on, I think it was on the, on the vastness of awareness and I said there's that sense of awareness is still a sense in awareness and you can kind of regard it that way and maybe uh, maybe free in some way in these two translations, then, some people, again within the Taravan tradition, will will lean towards the first one, and I'm really interested in why people lean in different ways. I'm going to go into this in, in these four talks. So what's very interesting to me is, why do I get pulled one way or another way with this? What's going on? I'm interested in pre uh, predeciding preconceptions, uh, fate, favoritism, etc. When the first one of these uh, two translations, which seems to give a kind of uh, inherent existence to the luminosity of the mind, kind of by itself, there, free of defilements, existing eternally, etc., there's another passage where the Buddha talks about, in his description in the positive of Nibbāna, which is very rare, He says, consciousness without limit, without feature, uh, luminous all around, and so then they tend to equate those two, luminous with, with that. But when he talks about, I'm going to get to this, this might not make sense right now, I'm going to get to this in a couple of talks' time. This, uh, what we could call unconditioned, unfabricated, uh, consciousness without limit, without feature, when he explains what that is, he says, it does not partake of anything in the phenomenal world. In other words, it's a consciousness that doesn't know anything in the phenomenal world. It's not awareness and consciousness how we usually mean it. Okay, it's something else. If it doesn't partake of anything in the phenomenal world, how could it be defiled? How could it possibly... It would not even meet with any anything of phenomena that could defile it. And how could it possibly be developed? I can only develop something that is phenomenal. Do you, you understand? What's the, it in the, the it is uh, sometimes when the, it's a little hard for it to make sense now because it really refers to something I'm going to talk about in two talks time uh, the unconditioned or the unfabricated and some, and sometimes the Buddha talks that in the positive very occasionally and says it's uh, consciousness without limit, without feature luminous all around but it doesn't partake of, of any of the phenomena of the world it doesn't partake of anything in the phenomenal world. We'll we'll get to that. But what I'm really drawing questions uh, about is the equation of this luminous as the mind with that other description of luminosity. Part of the problem here is language. If you really get into this stuff, uh, and some some of you will, and you know some of you won't, that's fine. But if you really get into this, and you read a lot of texts, and you and you study a lot, and you really want to understand, what you begin to notice is that um, people use language, the same word, luminosity, with a vast range of meanings. A vast range means very different things. And even, a te- I will use the same word, and a teacher, even the Buddha, clearly use the same word with different meanings at different times. And this uh, this is difficult, it makes it difficult. It throws uh, a lot of confusion in, in the works. Sometimes two people are using the same language, and it sounds like they're talking about the same level of meditation or the same level of insight, and actually... is is vastly different, what's implied by the language. Vastly different. Uh, So if you rummage around, and really, really, really rummage around a lot, um, you will eventually, hopefully, find what is meant, and you might have to look in Mayana teachings, you might find what is meant by this word luminosity, luminosity of awareness. Um, It actually turns out to mean purity. What does purity mean? Turns actually out to mean Emptiness, emptiness of inherent existence. Strange, don't know why they couldn't have just said empty. (laughs) But um, (laughs) There you are. There's actually a reason I'll come back to it. Um, Similarly, with language and language, the same language getting interpreted in two different ways and people can be having a debate and actually talking at very, very different levels of understanding. Uh, Awareness is vast like space. You hear that a lot, a lot. It's it's in the suttas, it's in discourse, it's in commentaries, it's in uh, people's sense of things and how they talk. Awareness is vast like space. But space, again, when you really go into it, and what do they mean by vast like space? Space actually ends up... They're using that word space uh, in a way that's different than we tend to use it. It's actually a very technical word. It means the absence of obstruction and contact. In other words, there is... um. It's just another way of saying it's empty of inherent existence there's nothing uh, there rather than it's a vast like space and space is something that kind of exists that way space is a perception too right we perceive space you have a sense of space it's still in the realm of perception right Uh, Do you remember that thing that I quoted you, the verse summary of the Prajnaparamita? Uh, How does it go exactly? Um, uh, The Buddha, the Tathagata, teaches that one who does not see forms, one who does not see feelings, one who does not see perceptions, does not see mental formations, does not see consciousness, mind or mentality, sees reality. Uh, It continues actually saying, um, analyze, if you're interested in the emptiness, analyze how space is seen, as in the expression by sentient being space is seen. Um, Seeing reality is also like that and can't be expressed by another example, but it means something different than actually like space, because that's a perception. Space is a perception. The Buddha in the Pali Canon, uh, this is from the Samyutta Nikaya 22, number 95, uh, is quite a famous sutta, but it doesn't, get, uh, it's almost, it doesn't receive enough attention. It's talking about the aggregates, one by one, and gives different m- metaphors or similes for how they are actually empty of inherent existence. So right there in the Pali Canon is the teaching of the emptiness of phenomena. And when he gets to consciousness, I can't remember the other ones. But f- uh, body and form is uh, a, f- a foam, bu- a foam. It's like foam floating on a river. I think Vedana is like a bubble, uh, a banana, but, but not, yeah, a plantain <laughs> actually is em- empty of uh, something inside. Um, anyway, there. But when he gets to consciousness, listen, he says, consciousness. This is the Buddha in the Pali Canon. Consciousness, when examined, is empty, void, and without substance. Now, if we just cut the cut the uh, quote off there, we could say, "Well, that sounds like space—empty, void, without substance, right?" It's Like what space is. But he goes on. He says, "Like a magician's trick," that's the analogy. Like a magician's trick, uh, this whole experience of uh, consciousness is is an illusion. Like a, it's somehow waved into existence. The most remarkable. As I said, jaw-dropping way. Consciousness too is an illusion. It's like an illusion. The whole sense of knowing is like an illusion. He's saying he's pointing to dependent arising and the subtlety, the depth, the radicality of understanding what dependent arising is. Not just saying awareness is like space, or a space. Coming back to these words, uh, luminosity. Uh, sometimes that gets paired with clarity. And you, you hear the nature of awareness is luminous clarity, or Clear luminosity, or, or something like that, and uh, I think you'll also find people flipping the two meanings. So, if we say luminosity actually means empty, and clarity actually means uh, cognizing, in other words, knowing, then what you've got is uh, nature of awareness is luminous clarity. It just means there is knowing, but it's empty of inherent existence. Do you understand? Don't you want me to say that again yeah. <clears throat> these words if you it's more in Mahayana text, but if you look you will you will find uh, the nature of awareness the true nature of awareness is luminous clarity or, or clear luminosity or something like that. If you poke around for what those words really mean, uh, it gets flipped a little bit. but basically, luminosity might be emptiness, in other words, luminosity means it's empty. clarity means there is knowing, there is cognizing. Sometimes it's the other way around. Clear means empty and luminous means knowing. But basically what it ends up meaning together, luminous clarity or clear luminosity means there is knowing, but that knowing is empty of inherent existence. Rather than there is something that exists and is luminous by its nature. Subtle, subtle. Why those words... uh, Actually, there's reasons why, because... And I'm going to get to this in the next four talks, because... If, if one says awareness lacks inherent existence, very easy to go to a nihilism. And so some streams of the Mahayana actually actually concerned with that and, and giving more of a positive spin on things, more of a, a reifying spin of things. Are you guys still with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what does it mean to say there is knowing but is empty of inherent existence? In other words, there's no inherently existent entity uh, that knows there's no mind or awareness as a thing or a substance or even a space. Uh, this is what I want to explore the full meaning of tonight and tomorrow night. So we we'll go back to that talk on the vast, vast awareness, and say again, excellent, excellent basis. You know, really important practice for a lot of people. Uh, whether an uh, there's a sense of vastness in there, luminosity, a sense of it being the source, the ground, still really important. Um, it's attractive to a lot of people. It's simple. It doesn't need much thinking about. Uh, it can seem like it's non-conceptual, but actually it's still conceptual, and that's what I want to get into tomorrow. It's still some conceptuality. feels like it's very simple and non-conceptual. It still is. So this is from... A wonderful, wonderful Mahayana teacher from, I think, actually I can't remember, 13th century maybe, uh, the third Karmapa, talking about moving on from that sense of vast awareness. Looking at an object, there is none. I see it as mind. In other words, when we were with that vats, we are beginning to get a sense our mind pervades everything. And, And we were talking about how it seems like everything is of the same substance as awareness. They lose their substantiality and everything seems to be awareness. One meaning of that, actually there's other more subtle meanings in the way that the mind fabricates things. Looking at an object, there is none. I see it as mind. Looking for mind, mind is not there. In other words, awareness is not there. It lacks any essence. That's the important line. Looking at both, both object and mind lacking essence. Dualistic clinging is freed on its own. And then, actually, interestingly, may I realize luminosity, the enduring condition of mind? But it means something different. It means its absence of essence. Okay. So that vastness of awareness is a very important platform practice. Yeah, I, I didn't get the, why it comes after that. Because the first, the first stage is the vastness where, looking at an object, there is none. I see it as mind, and then I have to turn, I have to turn my meditative scrutiny, my insight, onto the, onto the awareness itself, and looking for that awareness. It's not there. It lacks any essence. So that's the deeper, more subtle level. But I build it on the other one, yeah. And then I, then I see both together. So. What I, I want to kind of see if tonight and tomorrow can extract the full meaning of what's meant by uh, mind or awareness lacks any essence. There's there's a, it's, it's so pregnant with meaning what that means and, and can we get the full meaning of it? So the first thing that you come across, and again, very very common in uh, if you get exposed to Mahamudra or Zogchen teachings, um, some other strands of, of Dharma as well. But you say. Looking for mind, mind is not there, it lacks any essence. Persons say, you can't see your mind. It has no form, it has no shape. It's unfindable. Okay, so you, you, let me read you quite a few quotes, and I want to read them in a particular order. These are all from all from Mahayana traditions that go that route. Um, so, remember, mind means the same as awareness. This is Shantideva, great, you know, Uh, great teacher of the Mahayana. Since mind has not been seen by anyone, there is no benefit in saying that it is self-aware and self-illuminating. When it is not seen by anyone, then whether it is illuminating or not illuminating is like the graceful stance of a barren woman's child. Even to talk of it is meaningless. So, you see what we're doing here? We're, We're saying okay you get the sense of an awareness and phenomena are empty because they're just kind of expressions of that awareness somehow they're just mind somehow and then we're going okay what would it be to see that that how would i go about seeing that that awareness is empty the first way or the first reason is the unfindability of mind that's what Shanti Deva's called, i can't see it i look for my mind what, what am i i can't see it. it's impossible so i say it's unfindable therefore it's empty Another quote by Shandideva. Mind, awareness, uh, can be found neither inside, outside, nor elsewhere. It is not a combination, and neither is it something apart. It is not the slightest thing. The very nature of sentient beings is nirvana. Uh, This is, I can't remember the name of this sutta, but uh, I think it's the Buddha talking to someone called Osam. Osung, mind does not exist inside, it does not exist outside. It also isn't observed to be between the two. Osung, there is no mind to discover, none to show, none to support, none to appear, none to perceive, none to form an idea of, none that abides. Osung, none of the Buddhas has ever seen, sees or will see mind or awareness. Next one called the Sutra chapter showing the indivisible nature of the Dharmadhatu, these Mahayana titles are fantastic. Yeah, this is Osung, mind does not exist inside, it also does not exist outside, it also isn't observed to be between the two. Osung, there is no mind to discover, none to show, None to support, none to appear, none to perceive, none to form an idea of, none that abides. O none of the Buddhas has ever seen, sees, or will see mind. Next one, Sutra chapter. Investigate, this is a meditation instruction. So This gets a little more... Uh, Practical. Investigate whether this thing... Remember, practical is what I'm very interested in. Practical. How are we going to see this for ourselves in meditation? Investigate whether this thing you call mind or awareness is blue, yellow, red, white, maroon or transparent, whether it is pure or impure, permanent or impermanent, and whether it is endowed with form or not. Mind has no physical form. It cannot be shown. It does not manifest It is intangible. It does not cognize. It resides neither inside, outside, nor anywhere in between. Thus, it is utterly pure, pure, totally non existent. There is nothing of it to liberate. It is the very nature of ultimate reality. Dharmadhatu. Last one. The manifest awakening of Arachana. How should one properly, un- properly understand one's mind to be? Like this. Even if you search thoroughly for it as having an aspect, color, shape, location, as a form, sensation, perception, thought configuration, or consciousness, as a self, or possessed by a self, as something to grasp or apprehend, as pure or impure, as a constituent or sense field, or in any other way at all, you won't observe it. This Lord's Secret One is the portal to the totally pure bodhicitta of a bodhisattva. Beautiful, I think. Very beautiful. Did you notice... Uh, I've read them in that particular order because there's a level of sort of thoroughness there, of, non, of non-findability. of non that, that, uh, What it really means to non-find. Uh, and in this fullness of what it means to not be... So anyone can say, I can't find the mind. What does it really mean to not find it and to be uh, really struck by that non-findability? Did you hear... In those, Did you hear one that said, does not cognize? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty weird, isn't it? Huh? It's pretty weird. <laughs> Consciousness does not cognize. We have to put that, ultimately speaking. In other words, this is pointing to something uh, very, very deep and difficult to understand. So, just to say that... Uh, the mind is empty because I can't find it, because it doesn't have any colour or shape, that's not going to free me at a very deep level. Oftentimes in a sort of um, easy transmission of these kind of teachings, that's what you hear, but that's not really going to liberate any, someone at a very deep level. So we can talk about uh, the conventional nature of mind, and conventionally, um, this is a quote from the Dalai Lama, uh, Uh, conventionally, mind does not exist as anything physical. It lacks anything tangible. Any object can appear to it, and it exists as an entity of mere knowing. So that's that meditative, when we look for the mind, it it doesn't have anything physical, it's just a kind of knowing. Uh, That much, seeing awareness as that, is already quite difficult to see. It it takes quite an experience meditative to have a sense of awareness in that. In that way, you know that's that already is quite difficult, but that's just the conventional nature of mind. We have to go even beyond that, even beyond that, and deeper than that, analysing more deeply, and actually, what is the ultimate nature of awareness? The ultimate nature of awareness, and and this is uh, is something very deep to see. It's a very deep practice. So uh, there was a. <coughs> Tibetan teacher called Gampopa in the round about the 11th and 12th centuries, a very great teacher, sort of meeting point of the Gelug and the Kagyu traditions, Um, he said actually there are three faults or three ways, three avenues to see that awareness has no inherent existence meditatively uh, that we can actually practice with, that we can really practice with. Uh, The first is this unfindability this unfindability, but remember, it's like I want to go deeper and deeper into what that means, not just enough to say it's not a colour and it doesn't have a shape. Uh, That in itself is quite easy for anyone to see, won't be liberating, won't be completely convincing that that awareness lacks inherent existence. The other two are much more uh, powerful, really, really powerful in deep practice. (coughs) Second one third one I'm actually going to get to tomorrow night, um, but th- the second one is what I want to get to tonight. We use this word consciousness or awareness. S uh, in the end uh, of a word in English denotes a noun. This consciousness, awareness, right? It means a noun. In Pali, uh, the word is vijnana. In Sanskrit, vijnana uh, is a present participle. I no, this sounds technical. Meaning, the translation is knowing. Knowing. The subtle difference there. When we give something in English a noun, we automatically assume to find a something. Right? Uh, it's knowing. Knowing. So there is conscious. The better translation for the word consciousness or awareness is knowing. Knowing. Uh, So rather than a a noun and a substance, expecting a substance or even a space with some kind of spatial substantiality, it's actually knowing. We talk about the sixth sense spheres and knowing of the sixth sense objects. Okay, this puts quite a different slant, uh, it opens up an avenue that goes very deep in meditation, because knowing needs a known. Mm. Knowing needs a known. A verb needs an object. Knowing needs a known. Uh, And vice versa, the known needs knowing. I cannot have a known without knowing. It wouldn't be known otherwise. I cannot have knowing without something that's known. Do you understand? observer needs... Something observed. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. However, however... Two things. Uh, so we're saying, knowing needs a known, and known needs a knowing. They are mutually dependent. Mutually dependent. Two things that are mutually dependent cannot be inherently existent. It's actually impossible. Two things relying on each other cannot be inherently existent. Inherently existent. It, it, if one depends on another, it means as a cause. It means uh, they would both have to kind of precede each other to be a cause for the other one. Uh, I can't, they can't be simultaneous because if they're simultaneous then there's no time for one to be a cause of the other. So they don't arise together. Well you could say they arise together but with the full meaning of what it... so that's correct they arise together but I want to extract the full meaning of the implications of what it says to because we can trip off our time conscious and object arise together great if I take the full meaning uh, that actually ends up meaning that they're empty inherent existence quite radical so let me just finish it out uh, can't one can't precede the other they cannot be simultaneous because there's no time to be a cause so we've already been into this in terms of Vedana and the reaction grasping in the thing do you remember we talked about that too same deal Consciousness and perception, remember I'm using perception as experience and object. Consciousness and perception, uh, you could say also independent arising, consciousness and nama rupa here. Consciousness and nama rupa. Uh, that, That perception part of nama rupa or Vedana. Consciousness and perception is the same as knowing and known, and they always arise together. They have to arise together. They are not the same. It wouldn't be accurate to say they're the same. They are also, though, not different in the sense that they're not separatable. I cannot separate them. I cannot separate them. And I cannot have one independently of the other. I can't have a known independent of a knowing. I can't have a perception independent of consciousness. I can't have a consciousness independent of perception. Okay. This is an extremely powerful pivot point in, in meditation. Extremely powerful. It relies on one thing. It relies on a number of things. But one of the things it relies on is that i 've already seen, and remember i 'm painting a map. it relies on already seeing and having some conviction that the known meaning perceptions are empty that in, remember I talked about developing our practice, developing our practice, and said if we go back um, to the, the beginning of the treatment, I said these three characteristics they 're not endpoints, it's just we don't want to just say yeah, everything's impermanent that 's it it's we're taking them somewhere, and where do we take them when I contemplate. Uh, with less clinging, with letting go of identification, etc. The perception begins to fade. I begin to see it's dependent on the way I'm looking. It's a dependent arising. It's fabricated. Yeah? We talked about this. We see that enough. That conviction, that phenomena are therefore empty. They're dependently arisen fabrications. That gets really, really... uh, to, to a place of conviction in the heart. It's not just I'm not quite sure yet, because I've developed my practice of three characteristics to see that, to see it so it's clear. And then... Um, the three characteristics practice, when I develop it, it's led to this understanding, this seeing, of the of the fabricated, empty nature of phenomena. And then that becomes a conviction and then that level of conviction that phenomena are empty, I can then start, as I said this already in here can then start looking at phenomena and just saying yeah, empty, you're empty, you're empty, you're empty, you're empty, you're empty which is different than saying let go of identification, let go of identification, or let go of clinging yeah, so we've moved, the way I'm trying to present this whole retreat is do this, you get to a certain level and then that, that you can use as a base for the next level and then that goes, and then that level which is already a development, already a development. Remember, I know that I'm talking uh, beyond where many of you are, but I'm I'm painting a map, and I hope it's okay. That level then begins to be the basis for the next level. If that's empty, and I know that's empty, and I can look at it and have total conviction and say, you're empty, whatever the phenomenon is, you're empty, you're empty, you're empty. And I know, as I just said, the consciousness must lean on perception. Perception is empty, It's falling. It's falling through a vacuum. Do do you see? It's leaning on something empty. Is that what you understand? Sure. Um, If I haven't seen that, then this saying of consciousness and object arise together—it's not going to do much for my deep sense of freedom. But if I take it, take these practices developmentally, and I really have this conviction based on my own practice from what I've seen, time however long that takes, it's probably going to be some years, probably, of really giving oneself to this. Uh, then I can, but not with everyone. Some people go very quickly. Uh, then I can, then I can. That that pivot point uh, becomes extremely powerful, kind of leverage point into freedom, quite quite powerful. Uh, So we want, as I said right at the beginning of this, we want to go beyond just an intellectual understanding here. It's a meditative seeing that we want to develop. Uh, So consciousness is leaning on something empty. It's leaning on a vacuum. It's uh, leaning on nothing. Awareness is leaning on nothing. You could say then the true nature of awareness is that it's groundless. It's groundless in the sense that it's unsupported. Objects depend on mind, so they're empty. Mind, consciousness, awareness depends on objects which are empty. Two empty things, falling through each other, groundless, unsupported. Can we wait till afterwards? Is that okay? No more pen. Anyone got a pen for Noel? Oh yeah. <coughs> Thank you. The pen is empty. <laughs> <laughs> empty. <laughs> okay, so if I meditatively am able to develop, and, and I'm not talking about anything that is not possible, I'm really not talking about anything that's not possible, uh, if, and, I, and I lean and I go this, this particular route, I will find that actually even the sense of consciousness begins to fade. What does that mean? Uh, some Moving beyond the six senses, which is usually the, uh, what we know as consciousness... And again, that same question, is consciousness really real, if it fades like that? Uh, We begin to see, as well, like everything else, consciousness is fabricated by clinging, by me-mining, by delusion, like everything else, empty, empty, empty. So tomorrow I will go into the third of Gampapa's reasonings, which again is a very, very powerful meditative uh, tool. Uh, this one, I've already talked about, is, is uh, um, <clears throat> you know, if you feel that this is within the realm of where you're at in practice, go for it. Go for it. I'm trying to be really clear. If you want to shelve it, leave it. It's fine. If you do use it this way, uh, you can kind of hold in meditation a sense of this moment or this perception, whatever it is, stillness or calmness or whatever uh, this sensation in the body, and and know that it's empty if that's ready for you to say, just know it's empty, if that conviction is there based on the practices uh, you've been doing. And then uh, almost like subtly quietly reflect in the seeing, Remember, we're talking about ways of looking, that this, uh, this sense of consciousness is actually dependent on and not separate from that which is empty. See what happens. Um, this sense of consciousness is dependent on and not separate from that which is not empty. That which is empty, meaning perception, object. In other words, this thing that I'm looking at, whether it's a state of calmness or the sense of awareness or the space of awareness or a body sensation or stillness or whatever, luminosity, whatever it is, uh, the sense of consciousness dependent on that as the known, and that thing is empty, uh, it's not separate from that, it's dependent on that. Uh, that, in, in a much deeper way now, opens up a whole other level of this holy disinterest, a whole other level of letting go. In, in the Buddha's words, uh, not relishing objects, not relishing perceptions, uh, one does not relish consciousness does not relish consciousness, something begins falling apart at an extremely deep level. Something, this house builder that the Buddha talked about, starts um, being dismantled at quite a deep level. So you can do it in quite a focused way, into this stillness, this whatever. Um, you can also do it in quite a relaxed, spacious way, and again, in the vastness of awareness. It's just... Um, It's that sense of this awareness to also being empty. And so, like all practices, there's a kind of intensity you can bring to it, really focusing on this thing and really like that, or you can kind of sit back metaphorically and kind of rest in that sense, and the same thing, but it's much more uh, relaxed. So, again, like many of these practices, you can do it in a focus way or a spacious way, it's fine. You can also... um, we talked about, you know, there's a degree of analysing going on if you're using this reasoning. It's degree, but you can kind of do the analysis first and then rest in that uh, knowing, or you can actually, in the meditation, actually bring in that subtle thinking. It's really, really uh, powerful. Both. So, just to wrap up, um, it's it's interesting. Uh, Usually, when I talk about this kind of stuff, it it brings up reactions in people, and often, uh... um, Sometimes people get angry. Um, Or for different reasons, and... uh, Or people say, you know, it just sounds like such quibbling, whether or you know, such a... Why why bother? Or, how would you know, anyway? Um, Well... You know a practitioner can experience different things and different states and different openings and different levels of uh, uh insight seeing or whatever, and actually compare them and actually see which one brings the deeper letting go, which is the the deeper release um, so to know that vastness of awareness and the beauty of that and the freedom of that and the the seeming immutability of it, unperturbability of it, knowing that and actually uh, letting go of that and going beyond that and knowing and comparing this uh, latter, the freedom is radically deeper, radically deeper. And then in hindsight uh, perhaps one realizes that consciously or unconsciously one was ascribing inherent existence to something, seeing something with inherent existence. As I said a couple of times, It's pretty safe assumption to assume we are uh, giving something inherent existence, feeling it, seeing it with inherent existence, unless we're deliberately, consciously uh, seeing that it doesn't, actually contemplating its lack of inherent existence. The default sort of setting of consciousness is to see inherent existence in things. So sometimes people say, I'm in this big awareness, but I'm not giving inherent existence. I'm I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even thinking that way. You might not be thinking that way, but so to speak, unconsciously it's there, until I've really seen through it. Because to see through it, this is going right back to the beginning of this talk, is not something we can just do because the Buddha said, or because we intellectually see that it must be so. To see it meditatively is something quite, quite uh, profound, quite profound, and quite radical, and quite possible. Thank you for listening.